I'm Shannon Griffin, and this is Chatterbox. In the first of four episodes, I interview a woman who is no stranger to making headlines. I'm Shannon Griffin, and you're tuned into Hospital Radio Medway. Now, my guest today is someone who's been described by Sir Richard Branson as follows. Initially, when you meet her, you just wonder if she's too good to be true. All she talks about is good causes and ways of helping other people. And Hillary Clinton said of her, she has accomplished so much and she has inspired so many people along the way, but she's also great fun. She's just someone who lights up a room when she walks in. She combines the seriousness of her mission with the understanding of the fleeting nature of life and the need to enjoy every single minute of this beautiful gift we've been given. And Larry King, the American TV presenter, described her as a dynamic personality with a wealth of knowledge about global humanitarian issues. She's passionate about her focus on nutrition and healthy living, animal rights, and her life story is both riveting and remarkable. Now, Heather has raised millions of pounds for good causes, not least of which includes £18 million for landmine clearance. She's brought the plight of the disabled to greater public attention and championed veganism for the benefit of individual health and the planet. She's a philanthropist, charity fundraiser, activist, campaigner and mother. I am delighted to welcome Heather Mills. Heather, how do you react to all those accolades from Richard, Hillary and Larry? It's mad. I mean, what an um it's funny because when we go through the roller coaster of life, my sister, when we went through some really difficult times, she said, you need to get out all those awards you've had. And I was like, I don't know where they are. They've just gone in a box in the basement. It is funny when you do take a minute when you're so busy, just rushing through life, trying to problem solve, to reflect on on your life, basically. It just feels like I'm watching someone else's life when I when I look at it or when I hear introductions like that because I'm so in the moment and dealing with what's in the moment and what needs to be fixed now rather than reflecting, which is great for problem solving, but also you can learn a lot from your past mistakes and try and learn from them. And I think that's one of the biggest weaknesses of of a lot of people in life is is mm-hmm. to keep making the same repetitive mistakes and I'd say it was one of my biggest lessons because sometimes it's better to let things go than keep trying and trying and trying to fix it there has to be a line where you go okay I've tried everything which way but leaves but unless you've got either a partner or a team or or like-minded people with the same values beliefs and work ethic Mm. then you can spend a lot of time wasting energy and wasting life. So I'd say that was my biggest lesson. So how do you try and get that balance as best you can? Because from what I've read about you, when you when you get into something, you you kind of give it a hundred percent. So how do you get that sort of work life balance? What I've really realized is never to ignore my gut instinct. And when I've ignored it and listened to other people, I'll, I, I'm so open with my team and family and friends and everyone I work with. But if something in my gut, which is where most of our brain lies, 
is why bad nutrition is why we've got so many issues in in the world. Then I've realized that when I've ignored that and listened to other advice that it's backfired on me. And I like to address the best and believe the best in everybody. And it's a very hard lesson in life when you realize that not everybody has the same values, the same ethics and beliefs and is not as nuts as I am. So, you know, some people are are quite happy and, and I totally get it, you know, getting up in the morning and going to work and having a nice routine. There's real value in quality of life, but mm-hmm. it's about knowing who you are as an individual. As you said, we're, we're all so unique. So who am I as an individual? I basically have to be doing something productive and it doesn't matter what it is. It could be playing the saxophone, learning a language, you know, running a business solving a problem. I'm not someone that can just sit around and I never will be. However, I'm full on and full off. So if I'm on real time off, then my phone is off, my emails are off, um, and I'm non-contactable unless it's an absolute emergency. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've got the ability to switch off and then dedicate yeah. your efforts passionately to the causes you believe in. Yeah. And I think that happened actually when I was 25 and people who don't know me very well and only see the completely 110 miles an hour Heather don't believe that I can switch off and they're in complete shock when they join the company and see how intense I am start at five finish at midnight six days a week used to be seven finally took a day off when I said I'm actually going away for a week and you better ask me all the questions now so think of everything in the next week because you won't be able to get hold of me and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, really think about what you need to ask me because you won't be able to get hold of me. And then I go on holiday and nobody can get hold of me. I go to the top of a mountain just remotely and, and go hiking or skiing. And then I come back after a week and they're like, wow, you really do completely switch off. And that's knowing your personality because I'm not someone that can just be half in, mm. dip my toes in. I'm either in and getting on with it or I'm fully out. Mm. And I wish I could be a nine to five person who could just go to work and go home and switch off, but um, but I can't. And it's important to know. And we, you know, we're all needed in different ways. You know, I couldn't run my businesses without amazingly dedicated nine to five staff. How much of the way you see the world was shaped by your childhood and the things that happened to you when you were young? You know, it's it's a really good question. And a lot of people who have gone through similar, like my brother and sister, same childhood, same crazy parents, totally different to me. This nine to five, brother's very laid back, musician, not driven in any way whatsoever, but we had the same childhoods. So I've always believed it's innate and it's genetic. It's when people say nature over nurture. I truly believe that most people are good, but when someone's evil, I just believe they're evil. And it's very hard to to get that out of that person if they're really born with a black heart. You know, it's it's not a high percentage of people, but we've seen people in history do absolutely horrific, inhumane things. Mm. And they could use their childhood, because I've certainly had a horrific childhood, as the excuse for their behavior. But it's who they are. It's not their childhood who made them like that. I do believe 
that your childhood affects you because obviously my mum left when I was nine. My dad went to prison when I was 13. Um, I was on the streets as a teenager surviving. Mm. But again, I had that entrepreneurial skill and in genetically innate in me because I eventually, after six months after being urinated on while I was asleep by a tramp, I eventually had a shower in Victoria Station and saw a job at a croissant shop in Hoban. You can eat as many croissants as you like. And because I was skinny, they thought, well, she's not going to eat many. And I was eating like 20 a day, not sure when I was going to eat again. So I got fired after a week. And that incentivized me to never work for anyone again because they said you can eat as many as you like. I did. I got fired. And I thought, right. So that's when I said, right. I'm just going to do my own thing and started selling door-to-door bits and um, build up my businesses. Tell me about how you first got involved in your first business, because I think that's quite a great story. It's funny. So I was one of those young kids that was very, very sporty and won most of the hurdles and swimming and running because my dad was like a mentality of a general in the army, you know, get up at five o'clock, run to school five miles, do 200 lengths in the swimming pool. So those kind of rigid routines were definitely set in my head to help survive in later life, even though I hated it at the time, I appreciate it now. And I used to have to work every night after school for my dad's obsession with Richard Wagner, the opera composer. He thought he was a reincarnation. So we had to do animated versions of the the Ring of the Nibelung, cut out the Tolkien book slides. So I started to learn from a young age business. And so when I when my dad went to prison and I came back from London because my mum let us live with her for a few months and then I left. I didn't get on with her boyfriend. So I went back to Newcastle to see and hope that my dad had changed when he came out of prison. Of course, he hadn't. He was still absolutely not a good person. And... I was sitting in the dentist and I saw a magazine and flicked through it and saw these stick-on bras and always disliked having big boobs as an athlete. They always got in the way. My dad never bought me a bra. I used to have to strap them down with black masking tape. And um, and I thought, what a brilliant idea, stick-on bras. You can wear a backless dress with, with these stick-on things. So I started to sell them door-to-door age 15. And got a few complaints because some ladies had hairy nipples. And I said, well, it's a two-in-one. You get a free wax. <laughs> and so I eventually became an A, B, C, D, double D, and E cups. And I eventually was approached by a, a chain of department stores who asked if it could go in there. And then I built that up and it became a, a, a good selling product. It still exists to this day, which I don't own. I sold it when I was 17, I think. And then I moved on to realize that you could, I just made up an address, a PO box in London to look like I had an office because you could do that then. Probably can do it now, but I have real offices now. Yeah. And I basically thought, well, this is easy. Find a great product that's functional, solve the problem and it'll sell. And it did. And do you think that your, um, your approach, because starting up a business, running a business from a very early age, requires you to get out there, knock on doors, hassle people, 
has that was that a skill do you think that you developed at a very young age that stayed with you mm. because it's it's not dissimilar in the sort of charity world where you've you've got to you know knock on people's doors and be very tenacious and it seems to me that courage to do that and tenacity are two attributes that you seem to have in abundance and confidence i think my overconfidence can sometimes come across the, the wrong way but it's definitely put me in good stead to survive in life because if you don't have self-belief and you don't have confidence it's very very hard to achieve anything because you fall over at the first obstacle you doubt yourself you question yourself and I say this because I've got loads of very close friends from the old modeling days who are absolute stunners and just so insecure and made to feel that they weren't good enough and still doubt themselves to this day and have allowed. So I suppose I've got a bit of a Teflon outer skin, um, having to survive a pretty horrific childhood with a violent father and my mum leaving. So it was either, it's like scar tissue, you know, they say it makes you stronger. Obviously, I'm still human and get affected and upset by things. But because I've worked in war zones, I've nearly died four times, I've been through the mill over and over, you realize that there is no point worrying about anything because it doesn't mean anything. If anyone's in London and they should go to the Tom Hanks um, Mission to Space uh, audiovisual presentation, I went there last week, and it just reminds you even more what tiny little nothing dots we are in the galaxy. So why are we worried about anything? Why don't we just get on with making the most that we can to help people, inspire people? It's probably one of the best forms of therapy that I tell to everyone that spends way too much money on therapists. The fastest way to heal yourself is to help others because you don't have time to sit and get inside yourself. It's completely different if you've got real medical issues that that you need medication for. But I do know a lot of people in situational depression. I've dealt with, counseled hundreds of thousands of people who've lost limbs, more veterans because I've worked in many war zones and they'll lose their arms and their legs. And instead of just leaving the guys or girls in a wheelchair, I'll say, right, do you want to go to Austria? And I'll chuck you down a skeleton ice ride. That's exciting. I can strap you on that and you can get a bit of adrenaline. And then as soon as they've done that, they realize that there's always, whatever situation you're in, something exciting to do, something important to do. But some people get so clouded and often it's the people around them that are not helping the situation. You can be overly accommodating and cuddly and sympathetic when sometimes someone just needs can't think of a better word, but a kick up the jacksie to actually get mm. on with things. Mm. So Whenever at my friends' um, kids, some of them were pretty extreme, I would just take them with me to a war zone and chuck them in the middle of a field, you know, with me. And they'd go, oh my God, oh my God. And, real, and that makes them really go, actually, I'm really lucky and I need to grow up and wake up. Obviously, they were really, really troubled kids. I wouldn't just take a moody teenager and do that. But it's about relative to what? You know, I'm really lucky. I've got a kid that's not into anything superficial whatsoever because they've spent their whole life in earthquake disasters and war zones and they've experienced so much and and had the the beauty of realizing how lucky we are. 
Um, so I think people dwell too much on things. Do you think as a society we're perhaps becoming more soft and, uh, you know, I don't know. I sometimes wonder whether, you know, a young child, I've seen the adverts on TV where they have mental health problems and I wonder whether they knew they had a mental health problem and before an adult said that they might have one. Are we, yeah. do you think, are we, are we getting towards a society that is perhaps causing more problems rather than rather giving us resilience to deal with them? I think there's two areas at least. One is some people really do have um, mental health problems Absolutely. and no matter how you paint life, they're in a dark cloud and there's only certain things that can get them out of it. Mm. But there is a percentage that are overindulged and self-absorbed. And the more they read, and this is the problem with social media and the problem with the internet, there's a lot of benefits in it. You know, you've got freedom, right to reply, lots of things, but there's a lot of damage. So people like to feel part of a community. And if you get involved with a community of people that decide they are a certain way, so to speak, then you want to stay in that community. Even before the internet at school, everyone wanted to be in with the clicky gang. It's like a tribal thing also for a large percentage of people. I mean, if you think about it, when Princess Diana died, nobody knew her that was grieving. They'd seen her on television. They loved the work that she did. But they came together as a community. So it became like a a receptor thing amongst everyone. Everyone wants to feel part of a community. So the grieving happened en masse because actually internally they could be grieving the loss of someone that they'd had in their life. And it's the same in all situations where people are wanting to feel part of a community and that can be positive or negative. So, you know, I know some people that have made some decisions when they were younger, thinking they wanted to go in a certain direction, and then totally reversed it five years later. And I asked them, you know, why do you think you went down that route? And they said, because I was involved with a group of people like that. And I just thought, oh, that's how I feel. And it's, you know, hormones are an incredible thing. Whether you're going through them as a teenager or whether you're going through them as a as a menopausal or menopausal uh, man, um, there's a lot of menopause going on that people aren't talking about. Mm. And and I've seen you know what hormones can do to people, and I think there needs to be a lot more done. But the quickest way to work out how deep rooted the psychological issues are, in my opinion, with all the people that I've counselled over the decades is through the gut and through nutrition. Mm. So I've done 15 years of studies in microbiome um, through the colon, worked out what happens when you eat certain things. And and the amount of people that are sensitive to fructans, you like garlic, onion, cauliflower, asparagus, and other people that are taking on the trauma, in my opinion, of the meat, for example, um, if that animal has been killed in a traumatic way, then in the gene of the meat, so to speak, you are eating that. So I think there's a lot of underestimation of of how things are in your mind 
based on what you eat. You know, they've always said you are what you eat. There's a great documentary that's just come out on twins feeding one meat and the other one a vegan diet that's worth watching on Netflix. And I'm not saying that people are not going to have intolerances to certain vegetables and things like that, because I've done loads and loads of studies. You know, if I eat cauliflower, I go from six pack to six months. You know, my stomach just blows up completely. Well, of course, that's vegan. But if I have great digestive um, enzymes and hydrochloric acid and pepsin in my system, I can dilute that immediately. And I wish that all the hospitals in Britain just basically banned all unhealthy foods mm -hmm. because the one time you can educate someone is when they're in hospital and the one time you can feed them healthy food and give them no other option is while they're lying in bed. The health secretary, none of them seem to have made it compulsory to eat healthy food or studied and brought in nutritionists because sadly GPs only get a couple of hours training on nutrition and I'm a nutritionist and I talk to them and the lack of knowledge because they have to learn so much is quite unbelievable. They're still working on the old calcium you can only get from milk when it actually depletes the bones of more milk than it gives, which is why Britain has the highest level of osteoporosis after Finland and America. So all the science is there, all the solutions are there, but Britain seems to be a country that doesn't want to look at the science and doesn't want to fix the problem. I'd get it if we were in America and they're just thinking of money because in America they pay for their health system, so they're incentivized to keep the nation sick. Mm. But I don't get it in Britain because being in hospital is a burden on the taxpayer, it's a burden on the government. And you would think they would want to get them healthy, yet the one thing that improves your health and your mental health is what you eat. Your serotonin is 90% made in your gut. It's all scientifically there. My thanks to Heather Mills. Join me in the second episode of my four-part Chatterbox series, where I delve further into her thoughts on the UK food industry, her views on UK politics, and I find out about her early modelling career and subsequent near-fatal accident, which brought her to public prominence. To listen to more episodes or find links to all of our programmes and videos, visit hospitalradiomedway.co.uk. I'm Shannon Griffin, and you've been listening to Chatterbox.